Cam, how are you? I'm good, mate. Yeah, very good, Stuart. Um, intro from me, is that what yeah, you want? Yeah, just a little intro, just tell the people who you are. Yeah, so I am a medical doctor by day. I run a thing called Rowing Wad or Rowing Workout of the day um, in, in the fitness industry. And I'm always on the lookout for kind of new, exciting opportunities that I kind of work pretty hard to pursue. My background is that obviously I went to medical school and during that time I went on a big detour in rowing and I found that at medical school and followed that, managed to get to the Olympics, which is pretty cool, and won a couple of world championship silver medals along the way. Um, and yeah, growing up as a kid, I was into all sorts of sports, so fitness and sport is kind of a big part of my life. So I guess that's me in a nutshell. I love that. So the one thing, just how you say things, so by day, medical, <laughs> people are saying that you're, what is it, your nickname is Superman, right? <laughs> I don't know about that's, that. That works, I like that. <laughs> that works really well. Um, so uh, my question straight away yeah. is, you fell into rowing at medical school. Yeah. At what age? Uh, so I started it in, I was eight, well, 18, yeah. Really? Yeah, so. And you managed to get all the way to Olympics from that age? Yeah, so I mean, the first flag to plant is that rowing is a racing sport, so it's highly physiological driv- physiologically driven. So it's not necessarily a high-skill sport compared to something like tennis or football, where that skill acquisition takes a number of years. So, you, so I'm not a, an enigma. I'm not it's some sort of um, anomaly where you know, I'm the only person in the world that started at 18, 19, and then did pretty well at the sport. Um, a friend of mine called Helen Glover, she started, I think she was a little bit older than I was, um, but she started four or five years out from the London Olympics and won the London Olympics. Wow. So I, th- I think that there are a few, um, probably more impressive examples of people <laughs> starting rowing and then doing around the sport. But um, but yeah, it's because it's so physiologically driven, you can be kind of anthropometrically suited to it. I've got long limbs yeah. and I'm pretty tall. Um, and I think we're very good in the UK of streamlining talent to the next yeah. level. So I was, I was very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time, six years out from London. Yeah. And I was at the right university, so University College London. And there was quite a good rowing program there. And I just got a carrot dangled in front of me at every stage. Um, and, the, and the numbers do suggest it was quick. So within 18 months of picking up an oar, I was in the kind of Great Britain setup. I'd, wow. I'd, um, I think... Yeah, that is right. I, I had I had a world championship under under twenty three world championship bronze medal um, after eighteen months in the sport, and then eighteen months after that was invited into the Olympic squad after Beijing. Um, so yeah, that was me. It was it was a real tough sort of six years, but definitely worth it. And yeah, kind of forged me into the person I am now. Yeah, that's inc- that's incredible. What a story. So, like with as far as. Um, having you know, your long limbs and you're tall, but like, did, did you go for a trial? Like, how does is it just part of? Yeah, like, it's not like you're going to go and do that at PE. <laughs> Well, there are people that do that at P. So um, my buddy Mo, so Mo Spihi, he's Olympic champion now, won in Rio. We did the World Championships every year, I think, for the f- first sort of four or five years of our international. So 2000, was it six, seven? Definitely sort of seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. All through there, we, we did, we did, we're in the same boat. Um, he started rowing at a P lesson in school. So there are these, yes, yeah, so there's these 
really good schemes called, um, and I'm going to do them injustice now, World Class Start Sporting Giants. And they are essentially ID programs that um, British Rowing and UK Sport, I think, do to find that next generation of talent. Um, and I think there's a statistic where, I think at London 2012, something something silly like 50% of, of, of the Olympians there had, would, had come from some sort of talent ID program. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it is possible to go and find those people and, and the next generation of, of Olympians. And, and it's very focused in different sports. So big for the UK. Yeah. Well, we are the best nation, I think, um, certainly in the last two games. And we're consistently in the top of the world at every world championships, either like number one or number two. Um, and we've just got good strength and depth. So across all boat categories if you're going to the world championships or olympics your aim is to get into a final and medal uh, we don't really send boats that are going to just turn up to to be there yeah. uh, the criteria is pretty strict right. and the flip side to that is that the good thing is when you're training day in day out you know that if you're top of the pack like your boat is winning you're not just the best in the country you're probably one of the best in the world yeah. so on a kind of daily basis that's a nice benchmark as to where your speed is and what you should be doing yeah. so i just think that makes the whole squad much stronger it's got to be some buzz as well never yeah i mean i don't know if i'd describe it as a buzz like so the way our week would tend to work is that you'd have Normally on a Saturday, you'd have what we call pieces, which is basically like races. So they would be either rate capped or there'd be you know specific stimulus to it, um, and that was always like published publicly in the crew room afterwards. So like right. you wanted to know that your boat was you know certainly within a percent or two of the top boat, and if you were a few percent off the pace, um, you, you had a shit week basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's not necessarily I think a buzz of having You're talking a, a few seconds over. Right, so about like 1,500, 2,000 metres. Right, so it's not, it's going to be close anyway, but... Yeah, I mean, let me try and do the math in my head. It's been a while since I've looked at percentages in terms of boat speed on the water, but like, I mean, a percent is, is really, really small, especially at the kind of the smaller boats, but a couple seconds, yeah. you're, you're, you're quite easily, you know, not winning. Right. Uh, three seconds is a boat length, and a length is a long way yeah. in a race. Um so yeah, if you're off, if you have a bad day and you're like, oh, you know, five percent off, like that's a country mile yeah, in, yeah. in rowing. Um, so yeah. The thing that gets so with with rowing, is there ever a sort of thing you said you have, you can have you can have a shit week or whatever, mm. but it's not it's not like you know playing I don't know, like you said playing tennis where you just haven't got the depth perception that week. You don't, you know whatever it might be. Yeah. Is it is it literally is it fatigue that would stop you having a good week? Is it are you not in sync with each other? How would it? I mean, so all of those factors are reasons for not having a good week. I mean, so in terms of the season is, uh, let me take a step back to go a few forwards. So the season is very skewed to racing. So racing is in the summertime. So May, June, July, and then a world championships in, or, or Olympics in either kind of August or September time. So there's really only like four things yeah. that you race for. Whereas tennis is like a circuit. So pretty much throughout the year, most of the time you're competing. Yeah. So you're sort of winter if you like your training phase is actually much smaller comparatively to your you know competing phase same with football uh, i think rugby is slightly different because you've got your club and international stuff but um so for rowing most of the work is done in the winter and every week during that winter you have these little kind of like points of performance so you have you know your your pieces um 
And the idea is to try and create these really robust individuals that you can then take towards the end of the season and create these fantastically fast boats. Yeah. Um, so it can just be that you, let's say one Saturday, you're in a boat combination that you just, you just don't really click. Um, or it can be that you're, just, you're a bit tired. You've done 200K that week and just you, you're a bit knackered. So. Yeah. Um, and, then, and, and so not every week, it's not like your, your life is on the line every single week. It's not yeah. like if you know, this week you have a bad performance, that's you done. But there are certain performances throughout the year where that is definitely the case. Um, so about a month before the first regatta of the season, it's what we call final trials. And that's dog eat dog if you're a sculler which is two oars you're in a one boat so a single skull if you're a rower so one oar you just have one of you each side so that's a pair um, and there's basically a regatta of the best boats in the country so your singles and your pairs and there's a ranking and if you're outside the top seven you're in danger of not being able to be in the boat and if you're not in the boat you don't get funded and if you don't get funded you can't you know pay rent next year so there's a real like smack to reality where if you're eighth you're in trouble if you're first or second or third you've got a bit more leeway so if you have a bad day then it has significant consequences yeah. compared to earlier in the season so funding would so there'll be a lot of people that are kind of on the cusp and just you never ever hear from again because that's it their funding's gone and yeah i mean it's a difficult one so the paradox is that to be fast you need to train really hard to be able to have the engine and the skills to go fast. To train really hard in rowing, you need to spend a lot of time. So, you know, 20 to 25 hours a week of training, plus the same amount of time recovering outside of your sleep. So if you just do the math, that's a 40 to 50 hour a week commitment that you need to be putting in to even just be able to sit on the start line to have a chance of getting into a boat. So to anyone's ears listening, like 40 to 50 hours a week is a full-time job. Yeah. So if you're not being funded to do that, either through sponsorship or through you know, the, the national governing body, the performance arm, like how do you do that? Well, you have to sacrifice some of those recovery hours to earn some money to be able to cover rent and your colossal amount of food and you know, <laughs> paying your boat insurance and being able to commute to all these you know, training camps and things like that. So there is a weird, obviously, chicken and egg um, scenario where... In, in the way our system is set up, <clears throat> you get funded based on performances. So the way it, and it worked for me and it works for many other people, but it doesn't work for everyone, is that if you have a, like, a pretty good performance. So back when I was 18, I, I, I wrote a good 2K ergo test and just like, oh, okay hang on we'll watch this chap and I got a little grant to get help me buy a boat and I was you know got a bit faster in the boat and you get a little bit more money and you just sort of like work your way up that that ladder and for me that ended up working out really nicely and I'd won a couple of world championship medals so I was on the top tier of funding and it, and it was fine I could do that full time the tricky thing is that what happens if you get injured yeah. what happens if you have a really crap crap day at the wrong time um, and you fall down that like that cascade that's set up for that and there's you know for every success story you, you know, people People like me or people that won the Olympics then you know there's probably another 10 or 20 people that have been in the system for a while and just haven't quite got there yeah. um, so that's the sort of the the paradox that you hear about all the success stories but you probably won't ever hear about the cost of those sort of lying in the graveyard yeah. that, that, that never got there but therein lies the challenge and therein lies the ultimately the price that you you you, you sacrifice or risk paying um to try and tra- chase your dreams and that's why not everybody's an olympian that makes well sense. yeah i mean it's it's a tricky one because um 
you know, for me, the goal was winning the Olympics. And so I still view my rowing career in a weird way as a bit of a failure because I, I didn't win the Olympics. Um, but that's, that's, what you, that's what you kind of put everything on the line. That's what kind of you put all your chips in to try and win the Olympics. And, and very few people do. You know, in, in, in rowing, um, you know, Jürgen, who's my head coach, used to always say, like, in the heavyweight men's team, there's only seven bow siders, seven stroke siders and seven scholars that can win the Olympics every year. So you have to be the best, the one of the top seven bow siders, stroke siders or scholars in the world to be able to win the Olympics. So, you know, every four years there's only 21 heavyweight men that can do that, that can have a gold medal around their neck. And so, you know, there's, there's not many. There's a population of seven billion. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, 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 it's highly unlikely that you're going to be that one statistically. Um, but it's the pursuit of that, that that drives the habit. So where did you get to at the Olympics? So I was in the spare pair. So I was in... I, wonder, I looked at that. Yeah. I didn't know what spare pair meant. Okay, great. So um, I was in the men's eight in 2010 and 2011. So uh, that's eight people in a boat. And we raced and we won silver medals at the World Championships. And then for the Olympic Games, there's those seven people. So there's seven bow siders, seven stroke siders, and seven scullers. And then outside of that, it's kind of like being on the subs bench. There's a pair and there's a single. Right. So I was in a pair with a guy called Marcus Bateman. Uh, and then the single sculler um, spare at the time was actually Marcus as well. And there was a lightweight spare called Adam Freeman Pask. Right. Um, and so that's where I was for the Olympics. So it was, it was cool to be in Team GB for the Games. Um, but for me, like not racing for medals was you know not something i view in my own life as like oh yeah that's a massive success that i dwell on but i do take that experience kind of forward with me uh and yeah i i would i would definitely try and do it all again to try and win those olympic games yeah so yeah so it must have been like so what would you say then career highlight would not have been the olympics would have been something else oh no definitely i mean for rowing no definitely um 100 like i mean for, for me that was I mean, when I started rowing, it was basically just a way to get outside of lectures. Um, and I just, you know, I I went to medical school in London and I loved getting on the river. And just for me, physical exertion outside was fun. Yeah. Um, and it just quickly spiraled. Like, I, I didn't really know what to do as an 18-year-old. Someone says, oh, by the way, the London Olympics is like six years away like if you play your cars right you might be there it's a third of your current life well yeah exactly yeah and and so at that point I didn't wasn't really any thinking of anything other than I'd, I'd like to I'd like to row for Great Britain actually that'd be pretty cool to put you know a flag on my chest I'm like that'd be pretty cool and then 18 months later I was like oh shit I'm here I'm doing yeah. that um, and then I didn't really think anything of it at the time, I, I wasn't thinking... I was thinking, you know, I'm going to be a doctor. And then I got the invite saying, well, hey, you know, you're doing all right. Do you want to come into the Olympic squad with us and, and train for four years for London? And I was like, what? Sweet. That sounds meant... How am I going to do this? Uh, so, yeah, so I had these, like, really weird conversations with my medical school where I was like, hmm, can I do this? And they were like, well, what's the commitment? I was like, well sort of a full-time job like 7 30 in the morning till four at, in the in the afternoon every day for four yeah so monday tuesday thursday friday 7 30 till four and then wednesday 7 30 till like one or two wow. same on saturday and then sunday you get off probably once every two or three weeks yeah. um so it's a full-time job yeah so when i sort of said that to medical school they were like hmm it's going to be tricky, yeah. um, but we tried to make something work and, you know, I ended up taking a few years out from medicine, which was fine. And, uh, and yeah, re- revisited that after the London Olympics and qualified and practicing as a doctor now. So yeah. Yeah, it's all good. That's crazy. So, that, so how would your day, well, I want to come on to the medical yeah. side, yeah. but how would your day be structured? Because you're not rowing for 
12 hours, presumably, or... Oh, no, yeah. You, uh, oh, fine, yeah. So, um, normally... Where is it? Where is it? So, the, there's a, a small... I mean, no one will really know. Basically, over in, um, in Caversham, near Reading, there's a man-made lake that is exclusively used by the British rowing team. Oh, okay. Um, and you'll 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 just you'll just drive down a road towards Caversham and you'll see this tiny little sign which says like the Red Grey Prince and Boathouse. You won't even know it's there. You just take a little left and there's this massive facility. Um, so it's two k Lake, and then there's a training centre literally next to the lake. So you can do all your weights since where all the boats are stored. Um, so you basically live there. Yeah. Uh, there's a little sleep hut next door, so you got you, you you can go and have a little nap. There's a kitchen, um, so you get all your food paid, not paid, uh, catered for. Um, and it's all subsidised, so it's all good. And uh, yeah, so normally two or three sessions a day. Yeah. Um, and the whole environment is tried to create is, is is set up to be created that you're essentially creating a pressure cooker that produces Olympic champions. Yeah. Um, so that is your commitment if you like is that you have to kind of be there and it's a full time job yeah. yeah that's got to bring a lot of I guess we, especially knowing that some people aren't going to make it and some will it's got to be a weird environment at times it's a, it is a weird environment it's, it's one of the weirdest psychological environments I think I've been in because <clears throat> it changes throughout the year like the beginning of the year um after a world championships or olympics it's all quite happy everyone's quite you know it's all great and 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 bearing in mind the other stat to point out is that you are spending more time with this these groups of people than you are with like your partners or your kids or whatever i mean these are like your buddies it's you know not even in the same breath of the kind of work the military do but it's it's similar where you're spending all your days with these people um and you're, you're forging these bonds where you know, as human beings, when we go through difficult experiences together, that tends to, to forge some sort of bond. So, by definition, if you're rowing 200k every week, you know, and really cranking it and doing these 2k's and these like exhausting fitness pieces together in the same boat or yeah. with rival boats, you do forge these fantastic friendships that you know I've got friends for life now. And then throughout that year, you get start. You started to get paired off into these pairs or these like you know the singles, and so every weekend it becomes very competitive. Yeah. Or we used to have a fitness test every Wednesday, something that becomes pretty competitive. And then towards the the business end of the year, when you're in final trials, it's cutthroat. Like yeah. you you have a squad of about thirty guys, and only twenty one can make it in the team. You know, plus you know a couple of spares, maybe twenty three. So seven or eight guys every year that are training are not going to be in they're not going to be you know getting that world championship or olympic experience um so that becomes really real towards the end of the year um but you know there's no it's it's a hard thing to describe because it's not like there's any any animosity it's just it's a very high level of respect it's like if you you want to win so that you can put yourself in that seat but you know i remember having this um no, actually, I'll finish that thought. But at the same time, you realise that in doing that, your mate is not going to be in that seat. Yeah. Um, and that's the the weird thing to handle. And I got the first taste of that. I remember for, for the 2010 World Championships, <clears throat> we'd done this, um, it was called seat racing, where you like basically swap loads of combinations, you see who's the fastest. And uh, it was for the last seat in the eight. And I was very lucky enough that I'd won that little sort of matrix. So I got into the eight and Jürgen was like, you know, thank you very much. So um, on bow side, Cameron, you're in. 
great. And I was instantly elated. I was like, this is amazing. I'm going to the World Championships. This is, this is amazing. I'm going to be in the eighth. Like my favourite boat. Love this. But at the same time, like you're in a room with... You know, so in that room there were, I think it was eight guys, and two of us were in, and six of us were out. Um, and so, you know, me and a guy called James Clark um, were in. So I was on bow side, and he was on stroke side. And I remember just looking around at like at my mates who yeah. you've been rowing with all year, and like you don't really know. It's like, what do you say? Like, sorry, I beat you. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, mate. Um, you know, it's just such a, a weird existence because you know. In the 2011 season, you're all back and you're all racing again. Yeah. Um, so to beat some you know, competitive guys, so you're obviously be possibly a little bit of resentment. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's it's. I think it's more com- complex than that in the sense that it's, you know, all these sorts of experiences. I, I, I think mold different people in different ways. Yeah. Um, for me, I always found it. I always found it hard. Um, beating people that you know I really liked and I also found it really hard like when you when you know your boat crossed the line you like you didn't win people that you do like crossing the line ahead of you it's a really weird cauldron of emotions yeah. um, I remember was it 20 I think it was 2011 <clears throat> I was racing in a pair with a guy called Greg Searle who won the Olympics in 1992 so he has a bit of a, a comeback he's 40 in London um, so we had this nice um, nice pair going and for final trials we were doing really well um, we won the time trial. I think we could like come second in our semi-final, and um, it was the final, and we we managed to come third, which was a really good result there. So you know the top guys, Andy Hodge and Pete Reed, they came first, and this guy called Alex Gregory and Tom James, they came second. They actually went on to win the Olympics um, in the 2012-4, and Greg and I had come third in our pair, which was you know a solid result. But I remember like having just the weird cauldron of emotions where I'd beaten you know my, my buddy Mo that I'd mentioned before, which was great. But then I felt crap because I was like, "Wow, well, you know, I kind of want to be in a boat with Mo." And then I was like, "What's that going to do with you know the seat racing?" And then you know uh, Pete and Hodgey, who were also really good friends with us, like, "Oh, I'm good mates with them, but you dicks, like yeah. you're really fast, and you beat us, you dicks." Um, and, I, and so and then you start to analyze the race, like, "Well, if we'd have pushed there, would we have pushed? You know, could we have created a bit more speed?" So. I think, you know, in your mind, you're constantly replaying these scenarios of like, yeah. if I'd have just done this here, would, it, would things have been different? Or, yeah. um, oh gosh, it, I'm, I'm here. Was that because of this performance that I did? Or, so it's just this constant That's sort of so uncertainty. Complex. Yeah, and, and, and it's different to, I think, um, football, where you've got, you know, multiple matches every season. Yeah. In a way, you know, a kind of result early on, like, oh, you lost 2-1, oh yeah, I played like a bit of a dickhead, oh, you know, that was a bit, that was a bit crap. It sort of gets paled off into insecurity significance um when you get you know further down the line to the business end whereas in rowing because there's only a few performances like you have final trials and you have like literally three regattas before the olympics or the world championships everything is just scrutinized you know every stroke and, and the margins are like tiny yeah. um so you do just think oh shit but like that session where i was you know i actually think i was not quite as mentally tough as i needed to be and actually that lasted for a couple of days like shit is that the reason yeah. that we didn't do so well um you know i've i've won and lost races by a hundredth of a second which is like a bow ball um yeah lucerne 2011 we lost to the dutch eight twice by i think in this the i think it was i think it was the heat we lost by a hundredth of a second and then in the final we came third and they got silver by four hundredth of a second oh. so it's like the margins are tiny yeah. 
Um, and so in your mind, naturally, what a human being does is, oh, you know, if I'd have only done this, does that count for the, you know, yeah. hundredth of a second or the, you know, five hundredth? You can't just go balls out for the entire time. You're, there has to be some strategy. To the race. Yeah. So that's, that's the fun thing. So um, rowing is a power endurance sport. Yeah. Um, and the Olympic rowers are just a different breed of fitness. So your average person in a gym can't go balls out and then just keep that going. Well, I've watched, to, to pin that for a sec, I've yeah. watched your like, e-learning video. Oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. And you're chatting away <laughs> yeah. like it's nothing. And bearing in mind, for people that listen that don't really, that haven't used a rower, yeah. I'll hop onto the rower and I might be able to go for a minute at... 140 as a split. So that's, you know, 500 meters over a minute and 40. Yeah. And I'm working really hard. Now, I'm significantly shorter than you are. However, obviously, (coughs) even close to as powerful. But you're chatting away to the camera and just casually warming up at 130 as a split. You said to me when we were, I saw you in yeah, yeah, yeah. you used to maintain that for like 45 minute sessions either side of a weightlifting session. So yeah, so uh, slight correction is 140 compared to 130, right. but you're right. Um, so a few things then to dissect. The first is that the machine calculates your power output. So if you're, you know, I'm 100 kilos and six and a half feet tall, I can produce more power than someone who's five and a half feet tall and 65 kilos. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's measured on raw power. In the boat power to weight ratio definitely comes into it because you have to move your body you know in the boat so overall it does favor someone that's a bit more powerful so if you're slightly bigger and can produce more power you you tend to go a bit faster than someone who's a bit smaller um and that's why we see the heavyweight records are faster than lightweight records so that's one flag to plant the second is like rowing is a really uncommon movement so in life we walk and we go running for a bus or something like that so when you see people try and you know run everyone kind of figures out how to do that um and you know there's a thing i always say which like we grew up running we grew up cycling we don't grow up rowing and that needs to change um and that's one of the reasons why i started rowing wad but because it's uncommon the movement pattern can fatigue someone almost like from a neurological point of view much greater than let's say something like cycling or running because you're actually kind of like thinking about what you're doing the cycle of movement is bilateral as well so that's got to make a difference I would have thought yeah so it's a total most people think that rowing is like a pulling sport yeah and another way that people segment it is they talk about like the legs moving, then the back, and then yeah. the arms. Actually, it's much more um, fundamentally a total body movement. So you're basically connecting your hands to your feet, and you're using that entire kinetic chain to bring the handle towards your body. Mm-hmm. And you want to try and maximize the length at which you can do that. And then you want to try and maximize the number of times a minute you can do that. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it you're just trying to create as much power as you can in the shortest amount of time yeah um and that's how you go fast on a 2k so the splits you're talking about so i did that 2k i think it was 629.9 so basically call it 630 um and yeah so, so, it's, crazy. so it's, it's nice and quick yeah um the reason i did that was because the crossfitters i was working with at the time that was roughly where they were at so i kind of wanted to talk through a race plan and like almost stroke for stroke what i'm thinking or what you should be I thinking see. to do that um, for a male athlete, not a female athlete. Um, so, you know, for me, and when we were in the team, like every Wednesday, a 30 minute rate 20 was our fitness test. And so the benchmark there for us was 9K. So that's 140 split. 
um, at rate 20. Yeah. So that's why I think I said there, you know, yeah. it's, it's about the same. We'll be doing that for about half an hour. Uh, when I was in the team, my, my best 2K was 5 minutes and 48 seconds, Ooh. which is... <laughs> it used to be my job, remember? So, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all, it's all, yeah. so that's a, uh, an average split of 127.1. Um, but going back to your original point of you can't just go off really hard and stay yeah. there. Like you kind of can when you're at that level. Yeah. Because actually what I found was that I had a really high um, sprinting ability before I went in the team. But then with sort of six years, or really four years of, of, of Olympic training, as in kind of, you know, in the national team, just my aerobic capacity just got built so big mm-hmm. that you can produce a hell of a lot of power, yeah. almost like just underneath your lactate threshold. Um, and I always remember... You know, storming down the track in Dorney Lake uh, with my with my, my buddy Marcus in that spares pairs race, um, and I remember coming off the water and, and just and that bearing in mind that was the first year like all the world championships you, you, you definitely taper towards the worlds, but in the Olympics Jurgen always says that he like tapers really well and he makes sure that you're you're spot on for the start of the regatta. Um, well, actually, he says that you're spot on for the Olympic final day. Like right. you're you're done, um, and I always remember say, thinking that that race was basically like racing. With the cheats on like playing a video game with the cheats on because yeah. like, we sort of said to each other beforehand I was like let's just mate let's just go off as hard as we can let's get out in front and we'll just stay there yeah. like alright fine and it was the weirdest experience ever because you just go off and I, I felt like I was m- at maximal exertion and okay the adrenaline and okay in the, all the external factors but it felt as though I was at full throttle the yeah. whole time. Um, and interesting, there's like there's data to prove this. So when I was 18, I did some lung function tests at medical school, and I think my vital capacity at the time was I don't know, it was total lung capacity. So we measured both vital capacity and total lung capacity. Anyway, boring science um, to one side. I improved my vital capacity. So what that means to anyone listening is your total lung capacity is like the the size of your lungs, of which I've got pretty big ones. Mm-hmm. And the vital capacity is the stuff that you actually use. Yeah. So like if you breathe really hard in, like the, the actual stuff you can use. Um, and there's all this like clever, you know, increasing alveolar density and increased capillarization of your, you know, alveolus. So the little air sacs, trying to make more of them, and trying to get all the, the little blood capillaries around the, the the air sacs, trying to get that a bit more dense, so you can improve the way that you um, take take in take in gas, so you can you know get your oxygen in, get get your your carbon dioxide out. When I when I went back to medical school in 2013, uh, it just came up. We were in clinics and I was just doing a lung function test, and I, I bloody improved my vital capacity like a liter so there's like there's four years worth of olympic training and i just i didn't even in fact no it was six years so i did it when i was my a fresher and i got the data it was like my my vital capacity was something like 6.2 liters and then i went to um uh doing the lung function tests at clinics when i came back and it was like 7.8 liters wow and and, and so my total lung capacity hadn't changed that was still i think it's 8.8 liters yeah but I was like, oh shit, this works. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. lo and behold, if you're doing 50 hours a week every week yeah. for for five, six years, like um, maybe yeah, training does work. Weirdly so, yeah. so anyway, coming back full circle, that's why I can sit on a rowing machine at 6:30 for yeah. 2k and chat. Um, it's just because I've I've grown lungs and I've grown a physiological system on top of an anthropometric skeleton that, that is you know suited to rowing. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, finishing with a weird sort of little CrossFit mem. It's like you know, Matt Fraser talks about um, uh, doing today what others won't, so that tomorrow I can do what others can't. Like yeah. 
people can't do that because you need to have done six years worth of stuff or yeah. four or just an, an insane amount of time training for that yeah. so you just can't even imagine and the you've stuff got to have the genetic lottery well, that you yeah yeah have. absolutely yeah that's crazy so another question i have on on mm. the um, selection process yeah and things like that you, you're all together in, in this um training facility yeah how do you know it's not like picking teams like how do you yeah. know right we're going to put um you guys together today mm. and we're gonna is it just mix and match and you want to see what works or is it a chemistry thing is there a lot of communication that has to go along with it how does it work good question um <clears throat> so there's the athletes and then there's the coaches um ultimately the coaches set the strategy and the head coach the chief coach um makes the ultimate decision so the way our system works in great britain which is similar to how other systems work but it's not not completely identical is that the first thing is you need to train a hell of a lot of athletes to be really good at rowing so it's kind of pretty obvious but you train really hard and you make everyone as best they can be Within that, you have to have some sort of ranking. So there's a, there's a natural ranking that happens with like final trials, and there's you know there's set protocols for that. There's bow siders, so that all going one way out to you know your left. Stroke siders, so they're all going out to the right. And you were on the left. I was on the. I could row both sides and do a bit of sculling, but I I was better on the left, and the way my hips move, better on the left. Um, or the sculling, which is two oars. So you try and get a ranking out of that. And the reason for that ranking is because by understanding the kind of like the small components of what is fast, you can then start to build the bigger boats. So unlike athletics where you can have, you know, oh, look, we've got Jamaica, one, two, three in winning the hundred. In rowing, you only have one nation per boat class. So um, boats are a single, two oars, a double, two people with two oars, or a quad, two people Sorry, four people with with two oars. Mm -hmm. And then in rowing, it's a pair, a four, and an eight. So you can only have one entry per boat. Okay. Okay? So what the selectors and the coaches have to do is go, right, how are we going to win as many Olympic gold medals as we can? And there's lots of factors that play into that. It's like, what are other nations doing? What what boat can we put out that we think is competitive? Um, and so what most countries like the, are the size of Great Britain in terms of rowing squad do is they kind of stack their smaller boats first. They kind of oh, pair in a four. We'll get some good people in there. Then we'll big the bigger boats later on. Other countries go, we're just going to go for the eight. And that's we're going to get the eight fastest men or women, and we're going to put that in there. So what we do is we have two things, essentially. We have a ranking system for the athletes, and then that ranking system is used by the coaches to construct boats they think give them optimal strategy to win the most medals. Because right. at the end of the day, it's a business of medals. Yeah. Like, that's it. Like, the athletes, I mean, I think, like, sad, um, thankfully this is changing, but when I was rowing, the athletes were effectively a commodity to produce Olympic, Olympic gold medals. Yeah. Um, and I think the... Catherine Granger, I think, is a new chair of UK Sport, and she's she's changing that outlook really nicely. Um, but it is a business for medals, yeah. basically, and um, and so it's ultimately the the buck lies with the coaches and the chief coach if the strategy isn't correct. Because yeah. you can get into a scenario where, <clears throat> let's say, you kind of equally weight all boats, you could get like, oh great, we got six bronze medals, yeah, great, yeah. But in the world of Olympics, that's no good. You're at the bottom of the pile. Yeah. Um, you know, one gold medal is better than twenty bronze medals. Yeah. So you have to prioritize your best chance of winning Olympic gold medals. Um, and can you cro- can you cross over as an athlete? Could you do 
a pair here and you yeah. can be in, so you might be doing four events at the end of the day, you, so. you can it's incredibly rare um, the reason is because the way that racing is scheduled so rowing happens in the first week of the two weeks of the Olympics mm. so um, if you just think of the number of races if you're in a if you, for instance if you're in the eight there could be either two or three races that week so there's the heat and there's normally a repechage for people that didn't make it straight through and then there's a final so if you're really fast heat final done yeah. whereas if you're in the smaller boats you might be going heats then quarterfinals then semifinals then finals yeah. so if you just think about well hang on if you're going to have someone doing the single double and quad and they're doing 10 or 12 races in a week yeah. you could get into a situation where you've got the world's best rower getting no medals because they're just really knackered yeah. um, so they get to their single skull final and they've, they're not recovered from their double and quad semi-final and heats and repechage yeah. and everything yeah. yeah so most countries tend to just stick with one event to make sure of that um it's slightly different at world championships so there's been some famous examples of like the kiwi pair that have doubled up in the pair and the cox pair but even then it's pretty similar you're just adding in a little cox to steer for the cox pair it's it's incredibly rare to get someone doing the pair and four and eight or even just like the pair and eight um but you do see it i think the american women i think did the four and the eight recently um so it, it is theoretically possible yeah. um but physiology is normally the driver that is the yeah. barrier to it Will you guys be chatting a lot in there? Will you have lots of communication? On- well, in the boat? Yeah. In the race? Yeah. Uh, again, dependent on the boat. So if you've got a cox in your boat, virtually no communication within the athletes. Yeah. Because you've got someone who's dead weight, who is be able... The, their whole point is to be able to communicate for you. Yeah. Um, in a cox-less boat, there is a little bit of communication. <clears throat> but by the time you get to a Worlds or an Olympics... The crew is quite gel, and you know your race strategy like the back of your hand. So it's really just a kind of one or two word call. Yeah. So it's not a conversation like, oh, we're doing really well, guys. Yeah. It's really good. <laughs> like, if that's happening, you have serious words at the end of the race. Be like, that breath you had, can you yeah. just pop that into the, yeah. into the water, please? We weren't doing yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, yeah. First of all, we weren't doing well, mainly because you were talking too much and not rowing hard enough. Um, but normally it's like, you know, let's say after one minute off the start, um, you might have a core of like rhythm, go and that's it and you'll know what to do you push the legs a bit harder you just lengthen the stroke a bit and you're into your rhythm Um, or you might have a little a couple calls up your sleeve so you kind of maybe have a a little work call around the thousand meters Um, that's a nice little place in the race where you're tired and it's a psychologically really important thing coming through halfway like if you're down or up that can kind of start to influence what other crews are doing and you start to move towards the business end um you might be you might be winning the race and you might be out in front and you want to think mm, let's just kill it a little bit because the the extra psychological thing with rowing is that you can see who you're beating mm-hmm. so if you're losing you can't see where the other boat is yeah. so if you just get out in front and you kind of slip away from the boat you could be a length ahead you could be five lengths ahead that just kind of kills their motivation yeah, a little bit might, yeah. so it might be that you want to try and you know push everyone away so you call for a work call a bit early um and there's lots of funny little famous stories. Like there's um, in Sydney 2000, there was a French pair and they, um, they famously took on the race. They were, I think they were in like fourth position or something. It's 750 metres to go. They just went berserk, like totally mental. And they took their rate from like whatever, 35, 36 to like 44, which is like insane. And, um, and apparently the story goes that one of them thought it might have been 250 to go right. and it went a bit early. <laughs> 
And and the other another story is that they actually just call the names of their of, of their kids. Like every stroke, the bowman was just going like, "Oh, Giuseppe," or whatever his his partner's. Um, kid was called and like and just they just went mental and saw the red mist and you see them in the race just go out in front and they and they win yeah um so yeah there are tactics and communication that happen within but if you've got a cox there's much less between athletes because it's all should be cox driven um and in cox less boats there's a few sort of structured calls but yeah Yeah. not chit chat yeah (laughs) don't want my athletes chit chatting no um so is it is it strange at the village at all? Was it like a weird environment at the gym or whatever you see in yeah. water pads and stuff like that? Is it a weird uh, thing or not? You're all in it to say Yes and no. I think there's like there's different levels of famous Olympians. Mm-hmm. So like we the NBA players and whatnot. Yeah. So like I mean I mean I only had one Olympic experience, which was in London. So it's home city. So I knew how to get around. Like we public transport was easy. <coughs> uh, we. <coughs> We'd had Olympics, uh, sorry, rowing in the first week of the Olympics. So we were actually at a training facility that was nearby the lake, nearby Dorney Lake. And then we moved into the actual village for the second week, basically to have, have fun yeah. um, and support the rest of Team GB. So in terms of famous Olympians, like we, I remember we, we did a recce to the village um, a week before racing just to kind of make sure that we were a little bit desensitized to um, the kind of the novelty of it all, yeah. all part of the strategy. Like Team GB are very, very good at learning from every games. And that's one of the things that came out was the kind of the, the wow factor need to be just got out of the way. Um, so in that recce, like we met Phelps and you know, he was in the canteen and we all had a little photo. And I think we were a bit more like oh great look it's Michael Phelps yeah, yeah. Um, then he was like oh there's some rowers over there um, <laughs> and, and, and yeah like, and so we went I remember going to a party with Usain Bolt was there and, and he gets mobbed and so there are obviously levels of fame yeah. but the interesting thing just having chats to people and you know, speaking to like Mo Farah and people like that is that there, uh, out of the 7 billion people in the world we've got a lot more in common with those people yeah, than, than the yeah. 6.99999 billion that are not at the Olympics like you've all essentially given up a lot and committed to this process to try and you know win an olympic gold medal um and so it's i actually found it pretty easy to be like how's training how's training been going or how's when you're racing yeah or like when you're competing um and you can have these lovely conversations with people because curious you know a bit curious and you want to know about their sport and you want to know about like how it how it all works and equally all this stuff that you take for granted like what a repechage is everyone's like what was that like oh yeah well this is the kind of you know the the heat after the heat to kind of get and so you can kind of explain all these little nuances of rowing to people um but it's a it's it's a complete i mean this is probably politically incorrect but it, it's like a zoo of the human body yeah. i mean walking around seeing like the distance runners i couldn't get over how slim and and almost like, like they were defying gravity they were on training runs and they're just like wafting past yeah. um just amazing like just so quick yeah. and then going into the gym like one of me and my man like, should we go into some bench press yeah mate we haven't worked out for like three days we'll go into like the gym and it was like amazing kit and um all the weightlifters were just squatting. And I was like, that, that, that dude's butt is like bigger than like my entire body. Like he's just massive. And he's like four foot tall. I was yeah. like, this is, this is insane. And uh, like German sprint cyclists, like they're, I'm no kidding you. There's one, there's one German sprint cyclist who, or track cyclist who I think both of my legs would have not quite been the circumference of one of his legs. He was just huge. Um, and yeah, the basketball players, so we're pretty tall, like six and a half feet tall. Yeah. Some of the basketball players and volleyball players, like six foot ten, seven feet. Yeah. They're really impressive. Um, so yeah, it just, 
it, it was kind of almost from a from a physiological scientific point of view it's beautiful to see kind of human evolution at work where these completely variant body types you know a, a pool of seven billion people to choose from you've got the people who are most suited to this task putting a ball into a hoop most yeah. suited to this task like lifting weight from the floor like most suited to this task like transporting your body 26.2 miles as quick yeah. as you can yeah. you know or making a boat go fast like it's it was there was no sort of average um Olympian body type. It was just a kind of menagerie of these different human beings that were just really well suited to their their given task. Yeah. What an amazing experience! Yeah, very cool. That. And then, so obviously more heightened to you mm. because being a medical student yeah. as well. So, what, yeah. how did you get then from? So you finished that, and was did you retire straight after? Yeah, I mean, I went through this bit a bit of a. A sort of um, phase of thinking, mm, Rio, four years, and I sort of went back to medical school. I was like, hey, like, I probably can get away with like one year maybe of not in a team, maybe two, but I kind of like to go back after that. And they're like, mm, you've already taken three years out of medical school. Um, and we, I just sort of, you know, I needed to get on with qualifying as a doctor. Yeah. Um, so I think I toyed with it for about a month or so, and then I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to crack on with my life, basically. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I don't have any regrets about the, that decision, really. I mean, there's obviously the hypotheticals, like, could I have continued into Rio and what would have happened there? And But I'm, I don't know, I'm pretty grateful for the things that have happened since then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I returned to medical school, finished off the degree, and then um, at the same time, I think in 2013, I was just in a gym training and was a bit sort of... I guess feeling out of sorts, thinking like, mm, I've got this habit that I've developed in the last six years of training once or twice a day, and I, do, I feel a bit weird when I don't train. Mm-hmm. I've trained, I haven't trained for three days now. I don't know what... That feels really weird. Um, so I, out of habit, more than anything, I was just training in gyms, and that's where I sort of discovered CrossFit, and you know, one thing led to another, and that's kind of how Rowing World was, was basically right. formed. So the competitive nature of CrossFit probably... A few things, a few things. So I missed... Um, I missed the start line, so I missed competing, definitely. I missed that giving me almost kind of like purpose and validity, I guess, in a way. Because yeah. as, as an athlete, I think most people do thrive on that sense of identity that, you know, competing gives you almost kind of validity and purpose to your life. Um, I missed the training and training for a reason. That makes sense. How often do you see people kind of wandering through a workout? Yeah. Because they know they should exercise. Exactly. So like that intent, I think, was lacking for me before that. And the thing that I actually missed the most was like the kind of the camaraderie of, of team sports. So in, you know, turning up with these guys every single day, you know, you've got this natural camaraderie and there's a kind of security in that tribe. Yeah. Um, and so for me, that was another kind of pillar that I sort of missed. And in a CrossFit gym, in that community, I was just, you know, really well supported um, and loved being a part of this kind of community that loved fitness and had all different kind of body shapes and sizes and different abilities. And we all just kind of celebrated getting through the workout um, and cheered each other on. So I, I really liked that. And I, and I think the final thing that I enjoyed more than anything was actually learning these new movements. So I'd come from, you know, a land of horizontal triple extension where I didn't need to walk. Yeah. Like going from car to boat to car to bed. And I was now learning to walk on my hands and doing these muscle ups and like snatching more weight than I could ever squat before. And things like that. And I was like, this is pretty cool. Um, and that's where the sort of the seed of inspiration got planted for me. I was like, there's a huge 
wealth of knowledge in rowing that we can share to first this community but then wider because actually the journey that I'm going on in learning how to do gymnastics and weightlifting and all these other things that's a journey that all these people can kind of go on with rowing because yeah. at the moment people are being like oh what's your 500 meter time and I was like mm, there's a load more to it than just that yeah. um there's a 2k first of all to do that's more important than the 500 because that gives you a better metric of of things but also like what you're doing is not not optimal and it's quite away from optimal yeah um you're just wailing on that machine as hard as you can yeah yeah generating force joint to joint yeah and i was i was also surprised like and i was i wasn't surprised to see that in like your normal gyms but i was so that was the year uh, in 2013 at the games where they had the the half marathon the first 2k of which was an event by itself Mm -hmm. and i was surprised to see like the best in the world like fittest people on earth uh were still like rowing pretty suboptimally and doing like some pretty fundamental things wrong um and that's where i was like ah great well maybe i can help them Mm -hmm. um and yeah, it just sort of spiraled from there, really. So how does rowing wad work? So people listening, they yeah. want to learn yeah. how to do this properly. How, how does it work? Easiest way is to either go onto the website or the Facebook group. So Facebook group is rowing wad, so workout of the day, rowing W-O-D. Um, and people kind of post their scores and times and what they're doing in there. And then on the website, it's basically a subscription. It's, so you get a, a free trial for a couple of weeks and you get access to the website. And then there's loads of content in there. So there's now three years worth of programming. Um, and, and so I sign up today. I get all of that three years. Yeah, Brilliant. yeah. I mean, the re- I mean, essentially, I, the only reason it's a sub- subscription after the, the free trial is just to kind of pay for the costs. Really, yeah. I mean, I started as a free thing, which is just popping out a couple of sessions a week, and then didn't realize how much it, websites cost and maintenance and everything. Yeah. So we just put a paywall up to just kind of you know basically cover that. Um, and yeah, and I, I still think it's great value for money. It's like a tenner a month, and you get access to all that. And every week we upload two more sessions. In fact, we're building to the British Rowing Indoor Championships at the moment, so it's three sessions a week. Uh, but normally it's two. And there are yeah hundreds of sessions in there, all guided. There's coaching notes, pre um, so pre workout, um, warm ups, cool downs. And then you can work through either if you've got a specific task you want to do, or you just like dive in and just do a workout. Yeah. Um, and I've worked with an app called Live Rowing, so that's a really kind of cool app where basically you tap a button and it programs everything for you. And then it just calculates, or it looks at all your strokes. So every single stroke, it's sort of logging it in the background on your smartphone. Um, you finish your workout, send you an email and be like, hey, this is what you did. Um, come do another workout. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, and how do you balance that? If you're doing these videos, yeah. obviously, obviously you're going to exercise anyway, so you just, are you filming stuff that you, are you planning that in? Because you, obviously working as yeah, a doctor it's, so it's been it? hard I mean so I I started rowing what the year I started practicing mm-hmm. um, so I was doing you know 48 hours a week and nights and weekends and everything so it was really tricky uh, not last year the year before I took a year away from full time training just because I was saying basically no to everything um, so that year I could say yes to a few more things and then lots of opportunities I like, went out to go you know meet Concept2 and see those guys and I went out and you know, started doing some coaching for Technogym and so I could travel around to the US and I saw like Matt you know, worked a bit with Matt Fraser and Katrin Davis' daughter and Bobby Maximus and Jim Jones and so all these things could, could take place 
place. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I've got my medical career to continue. Um, and what I want to do with that is essentially reach people through exercise, exercise medicine, if, in a way, uh, combating non-communicable and lifestyle disease. And so for me, rowing what is actually a significant component to that, where sure. you know, rowing is a time-efficient total body way to get fit, low impact, reaches a, an elderly generation, the 60 plus. So there's a kind of... a posterior chain. Well, absolutely. And so I think that the and, you know, 86% of the muscles of the body, you know, nine major muscle groups, whatever, strength, power, and fitness, all, all, you know, all, all, all those benefits. Um, and we know it's good, but the, the compliance issue is, is the real thing that we need to kind of get over. So... Um, so yeah, so last year I was working full time again on neonatal medicine and acute medicine and 48 hours a week again. As of, th- where are we now? November. So three months ago, I've made another decision to take another year of just kind of doing some locuming work and continuing my training with medicine um, in conjunction with pushing more the kind of rowing fitness ventures um and it will be something that i'll continue to juggle and you know i've got that big goal of trying to you know reach millions and millions of people to get them fitter and healthier and how i do that will be either directly through medicine in hospitals it will either be through fitness ventures or a sort of spectrum in between um because for me i mean like the numbers don't lie like the nhs spends 11 billion pounds on lifestyle disease every year like that's 10 percent of the national budget um you know thankfully the the health secretary I think recently, you know, said that as part of the, the National Health Service strategy is that we need to get people more active. Like, finally, we've, we've realised that at a kind of policy level that that, that needs to happen. Um, but I, I just keep on kind of banging my drum saying that, you know, we grow up running, we grow up cycling, we don't grow up rowing. And if, if no one, like, kind of picks up the slack, we're going to lose this valuable movement that is time efficient, total body, yeah. uses all these muscles of the body, um, simply because we don't know how to do it and we're not making it fun or interactive. So for me, it's about creating these communities these kind of crews together um, that hold each other accountable support each other and get people rowing a bit more frequently so it's valuable for their for their body and, and basically just finding something that they really enjoy if it's not rowing then there's something else that can you can be active with um, but I, I feel like I still need to fly the flag for rowing and until yeah, and, until I feel like it's done if that makes sense well you're in a unique spot like yeah to, to be able to, to advise people and be fully qualified as a doctor to advise people on this sort of stuff yeah so as a as a rower with pedigree yeah that's a that's not unique yeah and i try and i try and not turn into like a kind of dr oz or an instagram celebrity i mean i'm very comfortable with what i do know and i'm also very comfortable with what i don't know and so you know on the you know through the facebook group or our channels we get people commenting all the time what do i do on this like i've had this like musculoskeletal injury repair of you know i'm not sure i'm doing i'm this part of my menstrual cycle or how do I combat training I'm very very quick to be like that's not my area of expertise Um, seek an expert Uh, but you're right I mean I I think having a medical degree and um, practicing medicine allows me to see through the bullshit um, that you know when the pseudoscience comes out um, which is great and also I've been to the Olympics and I've rowed at a very high level so I know the movement of rowing really really well but I also know it coming from a complete novice so within 18 months I was you know having never rowed before to being on the world championship stage that is that that just gave me a really kind of unique insight in how to kind of go to the next level 
at every stage yeah. um, just kind of almost what I would call like the minimum viable product to get me to the next level um, so I understand I think it differently to someone that's potentially rose when they were like 10 or 12 and they just sort of don't know why they do this but they sort of do it yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I really went through a kind of almost like an academic pursuit of really dissecting the movement when I was a university student and figuring out what was optimal for boat speed uh, and the other thing is as well is that because I've rode at such a high level I can have these got like you know when I go out to see you know these famous well you know fit crossfitters yeah. you just have a, you can have a conversation about like how's training going mate oh yeah it sucks yeah or oh yeah it's going really well like hitting these numbers and I can even though it's completely different like, I'm not a games athlete and <laughs> likely never will be is in a, a crossfit games athlete I can still have conversations about what it's like to compete on a big stage and what the training commitment is You're like coming to it as a fan yeah. yeah and I think that's the weird thing is that I don't think I ever really get starstruck because I always sort of viewed my role when I went you know went out to Iceland with Annie Thora's daughter or um, you know all the different names is that I was there just to kind of do a job which is that and I kind of want to make them better at rowing because at the moment it sort of sucks that like millions and millions of people watching people rowing really bad and thinking oh I want to do this on the rowing machine it's like no no that's not the right thing to be doing yeah. so for me it was almost a little bit more selfish in the way that I wanted to make them better at rowing so that rowing was kind of thrown out into the, the mass market and the mass media in a bit more of a positive light. But yeah, there was because um, like Netflix has all of the uh, yeah whatever the, the fits in the world yeah yeah all yeah. Those, those documentaries yeah and there was a huge deal about Matt Fraser getting better at sprinting. Okay. One year yeah he went from like whatever a number in the pack and he was yeah. ninth and whatever and then he won it the next year yeah and everyone was going over the moon because he he'd won this yeah. sprint so if suddenly the difference in someone winning the CrossFit Games is because they from one year to the next had improved their rowing then obviously that's a massive yeah well, I th- yeah I mean I think so taking that specific example so I've met Matt a couple of times and he's a really nice chap he is um he is a fantastic example of someone that understands what he's good at and understands what he's not good at. Yeah. And in CrossFit, you kind of the phrase is you kind of win on your strengths, but you lose on your weaknesses. So just the way it's scored, and I won't kind of go into it because it's a whole different ball game. But um, you need to have no holes in your game. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't have a bad event because you're out basically, or you're down the leaderboard. But you do win on your strengths. And so I think so. He comes from a weightlifting background, yeah. and he's he's not the tallest of people. He's probably five foot six, maybe five foot seven. <laughs> That's yeah, he's, uh, maybe he's a bit taller than that. Maybe I've lied. There's a photo. A, he came up to about here when I gave uh, that for yeah, anyone. Yeah, fine. So yeah. 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 Anyway, it's uh, account's basically <laughs> where I would read. <laughs> so, but but um, but he's so he's worked with a chap called Chris Hinshaw who runs something called Aerobic Capacity. Right. So I think he's done a lot of work on building his kind of aerobic system. Yeah. And if you just think about it, if you're fitter, you might win like quote unquote the sprint event, but maybe because you're able to produce more power and run a bit faster at you know 80 percent which is comparatively much quicker than your 100 percent you know in previous years um but kind of adding to that rowing is it it doesn't come up as often in crossfit so if you just did rowing for the rest of your life yeah you're still going to suck at weightlifting and gymnastics and everything else but in developing that aerobic capacity on the rowing machine that triple extension movement does cross over into other modalities quite nicely um so that's that's what i've been trying to do um, yeah in the kind of like functional fitness community but what I've noticed is it's just a bigger spill outside of that into the kind of the gym and fitness community but then even wider into just the population that wants to get fitter and healthier 
and they don't have the time. Like people, people don't have the time to go to a gym. You know, so we'll invest in a rowing machine, either rent it or you can, you know, borrow one or you know, buy one. And over time, they're actually quite cost effective. Um, and yeah, that's what I'm trying. Since to do. when we started, my father-in-law is a is a yeah started rowing and he does this thirty minutes a day. Yeah, hit a certain split time yeah. and all that kind of stuff yeah. over his thirty minutes. And again, it's because he's got that little time to do it. He runs yeah. a business and. So he's, he puts it in his house, and he hasn't got to have a gym membership, so that's what yeah. he does. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had to make sure I get him into Good, did you? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a... So a few months... Actually, probably longer than a few months ago. Maybe six months ago, we did a, I did a Channel 4 show called um, How to Get Fit Fast. That, did you? Yeah, okay. Yeah. But that was quite cool, because we did a little um, experiment over in... I think, was it, was it St. Mary's or Roehampton? Roehampton, I'll name drop. That's where we were at. Um, University and yeah, and so kind of we compared rowing to uh, treadmill, and in 30 minutes, so the treadmill you, you burn a little bit more calories because it's weight bearing, and that's just the kind of the way physiology works. But in rowing, you, you used more muscles, um, so actually, you kind of got a more total body workout yeah. in a shorter amount of time. And so, you get these people thinking, oh, I've got to go to the gym for like an hour. Mm. So, well, actually, you don't if you warm up effectively and then you row pretty hard you can get a really good workout you know six and a half minutes to do a 2k yeah, 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 and you're, yeah. you're done yeah um and obviously you don't want to do that every day but you can get a very you know that's why i kind of call it it's a time efficient and it's a total body workout um would they have got a greater um like epoch effect as well in that? we didn't measure that we think? didn't measure that i wonder how that would work being muscular yeah, muscular, that yeah. Might be a different i would i mean just i would hesitate to say yes because uh, the fact that it used more musculature of the body. Mm. Um, and again, it comes down to different factors. The two people that we test on were both kind of uh, crossfitters. Um, I think that if we'd have had... It would be interesting to do it on a rower. Yeah. So a rower rowing and then a runner running. Yeah. Um, again, that would have been not that fair because the rower would have burned more calories because they've got a bigger body mass. Da, 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 da. But, but you it's know what I mean? different based on, on whether it's... Uh, Efficiency of movements. If you're not a correct run, you're probably going to work harder. Yeah, I mean, and so. same same with rowing. So, that, and that's the thing is that the efficiency of movement on rowing, you actually break down pretty quickly. And so, I think my gut feeling all the literature says that running is burns more calories than rowing but all the literature is also done and quite rightly so like on your like your randomized sample of the population it's not i don't think it's done on rowers where rowers you've just got such an economy of movements so you can really really drive the calories yeah. um yeah, it'd be in, like for instance, you know, doing a 16k rowing session, you pretty easily burn like 1500 calories in an hour just at rate 19, just ticking along. Yeah. Um, so I'd be interested to see, you know, 30 minutes maximal exertion, how many calories you could actually burn, and then comparing in that to a treadmill. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, but the point of the story was for that we kind of figured out that rowing did really well. Yeah. Um, and you get a kind of a more total body workout in a you know the same or shorter time domain yeah that's really cool and yeah any any more programs like that sort of thing coming up or uh what channel 4 program no not doing any not that i'm aware of at the moment but you never know something no. might be no so not i think that that was supposed to be a three-part series and did i did it was it three parts in the end no i think it was just one um but no not doing anything like that in the moment got a few cool things coming up that i can't actually talk about but that's fine they'll yeah. be coming in q1 of 2019 um but yeah, there's always stuff going on with, with in the world of fitness. Yeah. People trying to reinvent the wheel and I think really just need to kind of keep things really simple. Like yeah. biologically we're the same beast that we've been for tens of thousands of years and you know, there's a certain number of ways to get fit. Um and you know, you don't need 
You don't need some really... It, it, the biggest thing I always think is, like, if it sounds really complicated, it's probably bullshit. Yeah. Um, sorry to swear. But, no, it, but, but it's true. Like, if it's... If, I mean, so I, I went to California recently, and I won't name them because I think it's unfair. But I wish I... No, my morals are high enough that I won't name them. So I went to a gym chain, un, un, yeah, unnamed. And bear in mind, it's like, without blowing my own trumpet, like, I've got three degrees and been to the Olympics, and, like, and I know no stuff in fitness. I was confused at what the workout was. Right. It was an hour's workout in a class, and it had rowing in it, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was looking at screens, I was looking at like people around me, and I was like, if I don't know what I'm doing, yeah. everyone else can't know what they're doing. And it was total chaos and total bedlam, and it was so complicated. Yeah. And like, and then at the end, they're like, oh, you know, any questions? I was like, well, actually, I've got loads, loads of questions. <laughs> First of all, did you see me running up and down and how like hard I was working? Your thing tells me that I came last. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, well, yeah, that's true. And I was like, so how have I come in this like? without blowing my own trumpet again like see how like I did I, I ran further than them I rode further than them I did more reps than all those people how have I come last in the class and they're like it's just how we work out like, alright fine okay not coming back yeah and then like, oh, I could and so yeah and I, I won't I won't add the different other bullshittery that happened um, because it might give away who it was but yeah, just complete pseudoscience. People saying, oh, you know, well, you know, everyone knows that, you know, your left, your left hand, that's closer to your heart than your right. Brilliant. So I was like, right, I'm not going to be coming back. No. Um, so, but anyway, the point of the story is that um, that is what I think is too prevalent in the fitness industry. And I think commercially they do great. Like, yeah. I think, and, and that's the sad thing for me is that fitness is, it's really, really simple. And it's not easy. Like, the, the hard bit is turning up day in, day out. And you may not see the results, for, you know, I mean, unless you're doing, like, crash diet and all, all that kind of, you know, small, small gains, but, you know, you, you, you kind of end up coming off the train later on. You won't really see the results, you know, maybe 30, 90, 120 days. Like, huge, huge results if you're making small changes. Yeah. But you will see those changes over time if you just consistently apply them. And then you go, you go oh, shit. It's like a year later or three years later, like yeah. I'm doing these things that ah I never thought I would. Oh do. yeah, doing doing today what others won't, so that tomorrow I, I can do what others can't. Like shit, that that's that's bloody true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what annoys me about the fitness industry at the moment is that there's just so many people trying to, I think, complicate things and then sell that sell you the answer, which yeah. is like their product. Um, I went to a I went to a class recently. And yeah, it was it was a really good class. Right. But it's reliant on a on a heart rate zone. Okay. And for me, there's so much that goes into heart rate based training. Yeah. If you're if you're fit, you might not reach the same heart. Rate. Yeah. You might find it easier to push really hard yeah. and, and yeah. maintain that for longer, whatever. But myself and my partner were stood there, we're looking at like the results, and someone walked up next to us, and they I don't know if they said it to us, but they sort of sort of said it. Oh, I didn't. I failed. Because they didn't yeah, exactly. Minutes they busted their ass for yeah. forty-five minutes and didn't, and then yeah. you know that's how they felt. And I think we've got to be really careful. Yeah, pushing people hard to make sure that we celebrate some success. Absolutely, and not let people work really low level and and then celebrate that success. It, yeah. it's a weird one. And the, the kind of one I always go through with students is like the fat burning zone. Saying, well, if you come <laughs> to work and put sixty percent effort in, you're not going to get a raise. So why <laughs> would it work in fitness? And it's a strange, you know, it's such a strange yeah. thing that we seem to find, try to find shortcuts and quick fixes so commonly. Yeah. Yeah, you spend 
all of our time telling me how hard you have to work to get to that level. <laughs> And, and I mean, and there's a and there's a caveat, isn't there? Where uh, for elite performance, like <laughs> there are no shortcuts, no. and if there are, they're cheating, like they're, it's doping. Uh, there are no shortcuts to get to that top end. Um, but I guess it depends on what you want to do, because I think that you know, for the majority of people, they don't want to be elite athletes, yeah. and for the majority of people, fitness to them is just feeling good, maybe looking good in their opinion, uh, which is a whole different ball game about you know social media and body dysmorphia and all that nonsense. But um, but yeah, it's just kind of basically feeling a bit fitter and being able to go about and you know and, and complete life as best they can and feeling healthy and you know having a normal blood pressure and having a longer life expectancy and not having greater morbidity, you know, time of sickness. I mean, that is what most people. That's only what I want now. Yeah. Is I want to you know I want to feel as though that I'm I'm strong and I'm fit and I've got energy and that's that's kind of how what I get out of my fitness and that's why for me you know CrossFit is such a great you know recipe for success for me because I have a community and it's you know it's varied and that just works well for me but it might not be for someone else but what is for everyone is that the understanding that fitness is really simple it is just a commitment that you have to make to yourself every single you know I was going to say every single day but it doesn't even have to be every single day um being being physically active I think you do have to be physically active every single day Um, there's a a clever chap um, that I know who says that that he views his workout as the business meeting he makes with himself every day that he can't, can't can't cancel um, and actually, if you just kind of look, you know, we, this is a podcast. We talked about podcasts before, like Tim Ferriss. He tries to dissect the kind of the world's elite in performance, whatever they're doing. And pretty much everyone has either a beginning or the end of the day routine. And pretty much everyone also has some sort of fitness practice, whether that's, you know, Tony Robbins is like jumping up and down on a trampoline and going whatever. And yeah. to, you know, Jamie Foxx doing his 50 pull-ups and his 50, like every, everyone has some sort of physical practice. Yeah. Um, you know, because we are off those cobwebs and all that. Well, I mean, if you just think of it from a more fundamental level, like human beings, like we are made to move. Yeah. Like we, and that's why you know, I do love the phrase that movement is medicine. That when you're not moving, you start to accumulate all these different issues. Um, and I feel as though the world would be a much better place, certainly from a bloody health budget point of view, if everyone was physically active. Um, because, you know, and the data overwhelmingly shows that, you know, the cost, people go, oh, well, you might get injured, you might get a musculoskeletal injury. It's like, well, you might, absolutely. But the cost to that is an absolute drop in the ocean compared to the tidal wave of type 2 diabetes, ischemic heart disease, you know metabolic syndrome like this is stuff that only exists because you know big companies go here here's some sugar and actually here's a there's a what was it the other day here's a little squat machine that you, you know stop it takes the takes the work out of squatting it's like what's the bloody point <laughs> like you know we have cars that take us from a to b like that we have you know i can go on a trip and everything on my smart everything is so easy but you know the human body has not changed and if you want to be fit and if you want to be healthy and you want to have energy you, you, you can't buy a burpee you can't you can't buy it you can't like hack it um you need some struggle well yeah you you, you just need to do it like i mean there's there's no real two ways about it. Like, you can buy the shoes, you can buy all the gear, you can invest in personal training, 
Um, actually, that's a, that's, a, that's a poor example because I actually think that investing in yourself in terms of training and coaching is a good thing. But you can buy your gym membership and never go. You can buy loads of swanky barbells, but you have to do the work. Um, and so I would just like to see a world where people invest more in the kind of the accountability side of getting people to do that. If you know, if you know you're not going to do it, invest in a support network or resources that will help make you more compliant you know which can be personal trainers or coaches or even like a, a, a training group or join a club or you know and it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be sport it, it's, it's much more fundamental than that I think it's more about kind of community um, yeah. and just sharing in that kind of movement practice together there's obviously there's a number of reasons why things like CrossFit work and why mm. exercise works mm. a lot of it isn't just because you're training it's because you've got a commitment to your team yeah and I think that the next certainly in the next five years but even in the earlier than that the next one or two will be really interesting to see how it evolves because our need is to unite behind tribes and communities absolutely mm. um, but where those tribes exist will I think continue to morph so at the moment fitness is very much kind of the way I see it is sort of you know there's this, this kind of your in-person experience, but there's also um, this sort of the digital experience where, you know, f- who would have thought 20 years ago that we'd be having these like virtual groups where we communicate about um, rowing wad or we communicate yeah. about, you know, T2 or we communicate about um, what, I, I don't know, like what river that we like to look at. Like Facebook has yeah. created these digital communities. Social media has created these digital communities. And, you know, we're talking about someone earlier who's like constantly on their phone like they're living through this like virtual world and so for me I think the interesting um you know landscape that will unfold is what's going to happen in digital fitness um you know will fitness migrate online so of course you'll have to do your burpees in a physical location you won't just like pay your your ai coach to do it for you and you get the benefit like you'll you'll still have to do it but like you know we're already seeing a huge skew towards you know at home fitness um and and so it's like will we you know will we will, will gyms exist in 50 years time discuss you know it's, yeah. that's a question that is you know is valid like will, will will places where people go to exercise exist or will it be the case that we've realized that actually we don't need a gym we can do it you know elsewhere whether it's at home or whether it's at, well you know it's it's an interesting um world in fitness that will definitely change in the next two years yeah. and if we just look at like neighboring sectors in you know how we how we view films now cinema is dying but we now have netflix and we now have you know amazon prime video or whatever it is um and you know retail's completely changed with the likes of amazon so in, in business has like we both do work for technogym yeah we'll be on conference calls with italy and it could be you know oh in 20 minutes we're up and onto a whatever call and that's a video conference or whatever and you think that wasn't really an option like, yeah i mean i i've got lots of different business ventures and i now on my on my computer because i just can't physically do the math every single time i have six clocks yeah. so like new york california tokyo abu dhabi like london where it's like it's just europe time it's just crazy yeah um but you can you can work you know from um, people that uh, you've never even met you've just met them via skype and email yeah. um so the world is definitely changing and I guess the jury's out on how that world well it's not so much out it's going to impact fitness significantly I've I've got my hypotheses as to how that's going to happen Um, and I guess the the jury is out on what things look like in 20 years time Mm -hmm. but I think the next 10 years is going to be a really interesting sort of industry to navigate Um, 
And I, and I hope the big players like the Amazons of the world, I mean, it's probably only a matter of time before it's Amazon fitness, right? Or, or some variant of it. Um, my gut is it'll be Amazon health before fitness, but hey, we'll see how it goes. But it's only a matter of time before they take the lead on these sorts of things. And I just hope that they do it correctly. Um, and what I mean by correctly is like what's actually valuable for a human being yes. rather than what's valuable for their bottom line. Yeah. Um, so, so that's... Because there's a lot that you think, you know, with, say, an Apple Watch, yeah. you know, it, you, might, you might do... It's, not, it's obviously very clever, but I remember... I, have, I haven't got one anymore. Mm. I used to have one. And I would do... I could go to a class. I can go train. I could do this. I could do that. And then later on in the evening, it'll tell me to get up and move. Yeah. And you kind of go, well, yeah. I've done an awful lot today. Yeah. It's that sort of thing. Okay, there's not, um, yeah. there still is, a, there is an element where people are going to go, God, what's, what's enough? I know what enough is enough. So I know I don't need to listen every time it says go out for a walk. But at the same time, yeah. people could kind of go, how much have I got to do it with those sorts of things? True. I, my gut feeling with technology is that we are only scratching the surface of yeah. what's going to be available. So I, I think that's a good example of, of, you know, at the moment your brain is cleverer than the Apple Watch. I'm, I think it's going to be frightening to see what happens when the Apple Watch is cleverer than I am. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a scary time. Um, I think that's 20 years' time. No, I don't think either. I mean, if you just, just look at the things that are happening in, in, in other realms. So... Um, chess. We've had now the an AI computer that is now unbeatable, which was you know unheard of ages ago. Um, and all this sort of machine learning, you know, AI. I remember someone. I think it was the founder of Dropbox. Um, so Dropbox was founded in two thousand and eight. He gives us a really nice story of. Um, he built a so Texas Hold'em poker where you kind of get, get dealt two cards the best hand is like two aces pocket aces he built an AI algorithm to play poker and the idea was that he could just like set up poker online he'd make loads of money because these machines were really smart and he just as it iterated and iterated he realised that actually this, this AI he built was like doing weird things like ooh two aces fold um, so, he's, so, so he's like shit is this, the, is this the future of AI and machine learning just like doing really well until you realise actually they're really stupid fundamentally mm-hmm. but I just I just just think that it's going to continue to improve and uh, just look at the progress there's a there's a, another really lovely story about um i think it's in Darren's brown's book called happy um about i just heard about i listened to his podcast oh really oh yeah fantastic he's a great mind isn't yeah, he very um, interesting he's got a really lovely outlook on life i think but anyway i think in that book he talks about um Something like it's like a, a thousand-page book. It's like the history of the, the history of the world, or something like that. And if you go through, like human beings don't even appear, uh, don't even appear in, until like the like the whatever it is, page one thousand on like the last line. Mm-hmm. And that last line is like, by the way, then the humans turned up, and then all this shit happened, and it was like, <laughs> and then like this one little letter, like this a full stop at the end is like the industrial revolution. Right. And then you're like, well, Christ, like how? I mean, this is we're on an exponential growth curve of what is like with we're, we're currently investing in like we are already doing it we are navigating space like we're trying to migrate our species to another planet because someone has you know rightfully thought hmm like for the future of our species we've gone from having two billion people to seven billion people really Uh quickly we probably need another planet to live on let's try and move um like just that is happening so i mean i don't think it's long before we have someone who's smarter than i am like alexa will be cleverer than i am on my apple watch well she won't be on apple watch she'll be on a bloody (laughs) echo dot watch or she's talking in the background but but you know, I mean, and, and there's freaky things. Like, you know, my wife and I were talking about it the other day. That in a year before um, our little son was born, 
I think we were talking about like babies or this this and that and and I got shown ads on like Amazon like oh you know baby yes. this baby that. and I was like what yeah I'm being monitored constantly it's like you know yeah KGB or something but coming back full circle the world is going to significantly change and I think that currently we are seeing things that are really really valuable for human beings but also the kind of the apple watch scenarios i just don't think will happen as frequently in years to come because yeah. it'll just be way way smarter yeah mm. cam this has been fantastic i've absolutely loved talking to you uh, thanks mate likewise to you yeah it's great it's brilliant good to catch up again yeah hopefully. really good um and thank you so much for all your stories and i love yeah i love chatting so it's easy <laughs> yeah, thank you ever so much um any final words for the guys um any final words? I always feel like someone has to be quite profound here. Um, <laughs> no, I, I would just say, like, if you're, if you're listening, um, fitness should be fun. It should be free. Not free. Simple. Um, I mean, it can be free, but, you know, whatever. It's not very, not very profound, is it? Um, let me... I, I, just, I just think that take whatever, whatever it is that you want to do in fitness, like, just take your first step, like, today. There's a lovely phrase that Tim Ferriss uses, which is, you know, tomorrow very quickly becomes never. Um, so just take it today. Keep learning. Like, I'm getting things wrong all the time. I'm always learning. Um, and, yeah, just commit because you will look back a year from now and regret not doing something.